Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Alrighty, welcome to the second last episode of the whole year, as well as the second last episode of the first part of the whole catechism of the Catholic Church. So we've got one more episode after this one, and then we are done with the whole creed. This is very exciting. I'm very excited. So this episode is the second half of our two-parter on the Catholic Church. So the last episode, we talked about how the church is one holy Catholic and apostolic. And then in this episode, we'll talk about the hierarchy of the church and the role of the laity within that hierarchy, like within that structure. Now, maybe you hear that word hierarchy and it makes you kind of shudder, right? Because it might call to mind sort of an image of a kind of elite club of men in the Catholic church who are sort of swanning around up the top there, telling everyone what to do and making all the rules. And in the meantime, we're all here like the little minions running around doing what we're told. And look, to be perfectly honest, that's actually not the most unreasonable assumption to make because that's how a lot of human institutions with superficially similar structures might function, right? Like that maybe that's the way that you've experienced hierarchies in your own school or your workplace or whatever. And as well as that, you know, that's an error of thinking that Catholics have fallen into in the past. It's what we call clericalism, which is this idea that, you know, priests and bishops are somehow automatically better or holier just because they're priests and bishops. And the rest of us kind of just have to defer to them in absolutely everything and never think for ourselves. And that is an error. And it's one that the catechism is quick to correct. So at the very beginning of this section in point number 872, the catechism says there exists among all the Christian faithful a true equality with regard to dignity and the activity whereby all cooperate in the building up of the body of Christ in accord with each one's own condition and function. Okay, so that was a bit wordy. There's a few things in there, but they're all really important. So the first thing that this quote is telling us is that every person in the church has equal dignity as children of God. No one is more or less valuable than anyone else. And then the second thing that it tells us is that essentially everyone in the church has the same calling. So we are all called to grow in holiness and to help others in the church to grow in holiness. We're all called to build up the body of Christ together. Even though, and this is the third thing we get from this quote, Bearing in mind that we have equal dignity and essentially the same calling, we all have different roles to play within the church. And that is a really important point to bear in mind because it stops us from kind of swinging too far in the other direction and ending up in a place where we sort of say, oh, well, you know, I mean, in the church, no one really has any authority over everyone else and we're all exactly the same. Like, no, (laughs) okay, we're all equal in dignity and our essential mission, but that doesn't mean that we all perform the same function or that we all have equal authority within the church because the church is a society and no society functions without some form of hierarchy. So I was talking to a woman like about a week ago, I was at a conference and she was talking about her job and her workplace. And she was saying, you know, well, in my workplace, we actually don't have bosses. 
Okay, we don't have executives. There's no CEO. Everyone is completely equal. It's what we call a flat hierarchy. So no one's the boss. Everyone has equal decision-making capacity in the workplace. And I was listening to this sort of thinking like, oh, come on. <laughs> like, you, are you telling me that the like 18-year-old boy who just finished high school and has rocked up to do some photocopying has the same decision-making power as the woman with an MBA who's been working in this job for 25 years? Like, not only is that ridiculous, it's also impossible. Like, when a big, tough decision needs to be made about like, you know, something important like the finances of the company, you can't tell me that that 18-year-old is contributing equally to the conversation. And actually, at one point, she sort of said, yeah, well, to be honest, it doesn't always work. I was like, yeah, of course it doesn't always work. But at the same time, I get why she's advocating for that, because I think when we swing away from that sort of rigid idea of boss and minions, we can also we can sort of end up confusing the idea of equal dignity and equal authority, right? And thinking that we all have to contribute in the same way, otherwise we're not equal. And this is what I love about the Catholic Church. That no, I mean, not just in this instance, but just in just about every area, whenever you find these sort of kind of unreasonable extremes of opinion, you always see that the church sits right in that complex, beautiful middle ground between the two extremes. And this is what we see when it comes to the church and the hierarchy. It sits in that middle ground between authoritarianism and a complete lack of authority that's just unworkable. So, okay, there is authority within the Catholic Church. Some people have authority. So who are they? Well, in Matthew's Gospel, we read that Christ gave Peter, who was the first pope, the keys to the kingdom. And he told him and the other apostles, who were the first bishops, that whatever they loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven, and whatever they bound on earth would be bound in heaven. So Jesus gave authority to the bishops and to the pope to teach and sanctify and govern the church. But, and this is really important, he also gave them another instruction. So in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus at the Last Supper get down on his hands and knees and wash the feet of the disciples. And then he tells them to do the same for each other. And this is so important. It's so crucial. Authority was not given to the apostles so that they could then just lord it over others and order them around. It was given to them so that they could serve. So point number 876 of the Catechism reads, intrinsically linked to the sacramental nature of ecclesial ministry is its character as service, entirely dependent on Christ. Ministers of the church are truly slaves of Christ. The word and grace of which they are ministers are not their own, but are given to them by Christ for the sake of others. They must freely become the slaves of all. Okay, so there are a few really beautiful and really important things that I want to call attention to in that quote. First of all, the catechism uses that very intense word, slaves, right? It doesn't just say that they are to be the servants of all. It says they are to be the slaves of all. Someone who's called to be a priest or a bishop or even the pope is not called to be some sort of oppressive overlord. He's called to give himself completely to the church and at times to even literally give his own life for the church. 
So if we look at, you know, the early Christians, I mean, sometimes you hear people say that, you know, oh, well, the bishops, that's just something that Christians came up with when they wanted to have more power over other people. No, not so. That is straight up not true. If you look at the early church, being a bishop or the pope, that didn't give you power over other people, okay? That meant that you had a death mark on you. Like, to be a bishop meant that you were in danger of dying. In fact, of the first 31 popes in the early church, 28 were martyred. So from the very beginning, this has been the whole point of the hierarchy of the church. It's not about power or lording it over others. It's about, yes, authority. There is authority and power, but it is inextricably and crucially bound up with service, serving the good of the church and the good of the faithful and helping them to grow closer to Christ. Now, you might hear all of this and think, okay, that's all well and good. But in reality, I mean, haven't there been a lot of bad popes who just wanted money and power in the past and bad bishops? And the answer to that objection is yes. <laughs> Basically, yes, there have been. But uh, this is an idea that I think comes from C.S. Lewis. I can't find where he said it, but I think it comes from him. He says, imagine if someone's doing maths, right? And they're getting all of their sums completely wrong. In that instance, the problem isn't with mathematics in general. The problem is with that person who's doing the sums wrong. So in the same way, yes, people within the church have abused their ministerial roles in the past, but that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the idea of a hierarchy itself. It means that there's something wrong with that person in that instance. Used correctly, that power and authority becomes a means to serve the church. And we've been very lucky, actually, in the church in the last few popes who have just been such beautiful and good examples of the true meaning and purpose of that role. And when we say serve the church, one of the things that we mean is that priests and bishops are not called to make up their own rules about what's right and wrong. They're not called to invent stuff. They are simply called to pass on and to preserve the exact things that Christ first taught his disciples. So if we go back to that quote from the Catechism, the word and grace of which they are ministers are not their own. So it's not just random teachings that they're coming up with and passing on. It's Christ's word that they have a duty to preserve and to pass on. So the bishops don't just sit around and sort of go, you know, oh, well, this question of euthanasia has become a really hot topic over the last few years. What do you think about it? Here's what I happen to think about it. Well, let's all just discuss it and then take a vote and we'll be democratic. You know, whatever the majority opinion is, that's what we'll go with, regardless of what the church has always taught. No, okay, the bishops do not have that authority. The job of the magisterium is to preserve and to teach what Christ taught his disciples. Now, we need to clarify something here. Obviously, there are some things that Christ didn't make explicit when he was on this earth. Okay, They don't appear in the New Testament. And that's because they were issues that weren't relevant at the time. So they didn't need to be spelled out. So, for instance, things like euthanasia or like, you know, legalizing marijuana. There were also other things that were really complex that are there in the New Testament, but it took the church a long time to kind of understand and solidify and unpack what they actually were and what they meant. So, for instance, things like the Trinity. And there were other things as well that weren't actually controversial in the early church. 
but that later became disputed and then they had to be explicitly defined. So for instance, the Immaculate Conception, or more broadly, if we're thinking about the role of Mary in general, that if you read the early you know, church fathers and their writings, there's so much consensus around the role of Mary in her Immaculate Conception, etc., But then when it came to the Reformation, that became a point of dispute. So the church had to sort of define it. Okay, so in each of those instances, when it came time for the church to definitively sort of decide, okay, what does the church actually teach about this? What do we understand about this? The bishops didn't just sit down and decide from scratch what they personally thought the truth might be. Even... If those things are not spelled out explicitly in the Bible, the stuff that we needed to answer those questions, the theological truths that we needed in order to you know, respond to these issues, that was all there in the Gospels, okay, in Revelation. So the role of the magisterium wasn't to invent anything. It was to interpret and apply those truths. Now, the question that follows on from that is that, If everything is not explicitly spelled out in the Bible and it has to be interpreted by the church, how can we be sure that the church is interpreting those things correctly and coming up with the right answers? And, you know, we talked about this in the last episode, that human beings are fallible. Our consciences can be wrong. Our judgment can be wrong. Even the greatest, most intelligent, most knowledgeable theologian can't be always relied on to get it right. Like you look at, for instance, at St. Thomas Aquinas. He's basically the greatest theologian the church has ever had. And even he didn't completely 100% nail it when it came to the Immaculate Conception. He, He got most of the way there. He was on the right track, but he didn't quite get there. So we can't rely on any human being to be infallible. And Jesus has already ascended into heaven. So we can't just like barrel up to him either and be like, hey, what do we do in this situation? So what do we do then? How can we be sure that the church is right about stuff? Okay, well, to answer that question, we need to turn to the Gospels. When Christ established his church, he did not look at Peter and say, oh, okay, Peter, you are the most knowledgeable, intelligent, holy apostle. So I can rely on you to be the rock on which I build my church based on your personal qualifications. Okay. I mean, Peter is constantly getting stuff wrong in the Bible. He's got no idea what's going on. Like you look at him, for instance, in the transfiguration, right? When they're up on Mount Tabor, Jesus is completely transfigured. Moses and Elijah have appeared. The voice of God is coming out of a cloud. It's like an incredibly supernatural moment. And then Peter pipes up and he's like, would you like me to set up some tents? <laughs> like, what? What are you talking about, Peter? You want Moses and Elijah to camp with you? Like, what are you on about? Peter had no idea. As well as that, Peter wasn't some kind of perfect saint, especially not at that point. Like, during the crucifixion, he is the guy who's out the back denying that he even knows who Jesus is. He fully betrayed his best friend and greatest love. So it's not like Peter is some perfect theologian or perfect person. And the same goes for all of the apostles, right? They're all flawed and broken like every human. But that is not what Christ was looking at or thinking about when he told them, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. He's not basing that on the personal qualifications of the apostles. Instead, 
Christ promises his Holy Spirit to the apostles. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth. So basically, Christ guaranteed not that the people themselves were infallible and perfect, but that he himself is infallible and perfect, that he would be protecting his church in the Holy Spirit. And this is why we can say with confidence that when all the bishops of the church all come together in unity with each other and with the Pope, particularly in what we call an ecumenical council, so things like the Council of Nicaea or the Council of Trent or the Vatican Councils. So when that happens, when they come together in unity and they say, okay, this is what the Catholic Church definitively teaches, we can confidently say in those moments that the church is what we call infallible. In other words, we can be sure that what they're teaching is correct. And the same thing goes for the Pope when he speaks ex cathedra, which means from the chair. So basically when the Pope invokes his authority and says definitively, right, this is what the church believes. This is what we teach, which, by the way, the Pope has literally only ever done this twice ever. (laughs) And I don't mean like this particular Pope. I mean, popes in general. This has only happened twice ever. And, And both times he did it in consultation with all the bishops of the world. Okay, so it's not like the Pope is getting around just flinging dogmas left, right and center, being like, this is a dogma, this is a dogma. Okay, but when the Pope does make a declaration, a definitive declaration like that, we can also trust that he's getting it right. He is infallible. Not because he's some great theologian, not because he's a perfect person, but because he is protected by the Holy Spirit. So we can kind of think of it, it's kind of like Iron Man, okay? So if you don't know who Iron Man is, he's a Marvel character, and he's basically this scientist and inventor. His actual name is Tony Stark, and he invents this, like, robotic suit that has all of these epic powers, and it can fly, and it's super strong, and it has all these gadgets and stuff in it. Okay, when Tony Stark steps into the suit, he can pretty much do anything. He's super strong and super powerful, but... When he's not wearing the suit, he's relatively powerless. Like, he's still super smart and super cool, but if a big scary bad guy suddenly exploded out of the sky, he wouldn't really be able to do anything about it. But as soon as he steps into the Iron Man suit, he's suddenly super strong and super amazing. So it's kind of like the Pope, right? When the Pope definitively proclaims something as dogma, when he's wearing the Iron Man suit, we say that he's infallible. But, this is a really important point, the Pope is not always infallible every single time he opens his mouth, okay? He's not personally infallible. It's his role that is infallible. So, when the Pope is interviewed in his everyday life by the media on, for instance, like an aeroplane, and he gives a personal opinion about something in passing, he's not infallible in that moment. So we shouldn't get our knickers in a twist if the Pope says something in in a moment like that that we think sounds a bit weird or a bit unclear. If we're worried about it, we can pray for the Pope, we can love him harder, we can pray for anyone who might be confused, and then let it go, leave it to God, right? If it comes up in conversation, obviously we can calmly guide people towards the church's official teaching on that topic, but we don't 
need to panic. And in fact, I actually find it kind of amazing and kind of helpful when you look at the church's history and you look at the mistakes that popes have made in the past. I mean, to be honest, there are some popes in the church's history who have, to put it lightly, had extremely dubious private lives. Okay. And not a single one of those popes ever has changed any of the dogmas of the church. Like, that's incredible when you think about it. When you think about the possibility, like 2,000 years and how bad some of the popes have been, none of them have ever changed the dogmas of the church. Also, this is kind of a side note, this is why Pope Emeritus Benedict doesn't isn't infallible now that he has stepped out of the Iron Man suit, right? Now that he's no longer the Pope. Like, if he were to come out tomorrow and say, you know, X, Y, Z, this is true, etc., I'm sure we would all listen to him with great reverence and respect, not just because he used to be the Pope, but also because he's a great theologian, but he's not infallible. Okay, so the role of the Pope is infallible, the person of the Pope isn't. That's the hierarchy, and I know that we've spent a lot of time on the hierarchy, but I think it's really important to clarify. But... Having clarified it, I don't want to give the impression that the church is all about the hierarchy and the magisterium. And we talked about this in the last episode, right? The magisterium has authority, especially in those essential aspects of church doctrine. And the doctrine of the church is like scaffolding, right? It's completely essential. But that doctrine, that scaffolding, it's a means. It's not the end in itself. It's the foundation, the structure around which the whole church is built. And what is the church? Well, we said this in the last episode. The church is a society made up of all the baptized faithful. So you and me, okay? Now, the catechism uses the word laity to refer to any member of the church who isn't a priest or religious. And there have been times in the past, particularly prior to Vatican II, where the role of the laity has been underplayed or perhaps not clearly articulated or understood as well as it could have been. And this is one of the things that Vatican II really worked to clarify and emphasize, the fact that the laity are not just an addendum to the church. They're not extras or minions or subordinates. So one of the key documents that came out of Vatican II was a dogmatic constitution called Lumen Gentium. And in this document, there is a whole section on the laity, and it's just so clear and so fantastic, and everyone should read it because it's amazing. But I'm just going to quote a little bit from it now. It says, what specifically characterizes the laity is their secular nature. It is true that those in holy orders can at times be engaged in secular activities, but the laity, by their very vocation, live in the world. They live in the ordinary circumstances of family and social life. They are called there by God that by exercising their proper function and led by the spirit of the gospel, they may work for the sanctification of the world from within as leaven. What's being emphasized here by the church is that the laity has a specific vocation, calling from God. 
So it's not like, you know, they're just the leftovers that didn't get picked. You know, that like that situation in high school when you try out for all the sports teams and then all the cool kids get in and you don't get into any of them because you suck at sport and you end up being in like the daggy loser sport that's called energetic walking, which basically means that you and all the other dags have to walk to the oval and help the weird quirky English teacher do some gardening while everyone else slays it in the volleyball team and you feel like a complete outcast. Okay, it's not that I'm speaking from personal experience, but it's not like that. The laity has a vocation. They, they are the church. And the catechism literally says that in point 899. It also says lay believers are in the front line of church life. It's okay, we have a job, which is first of all, to be personally sanctified, and then to set the whole world on fire. So this is where I would really recommend reading the writings of St. Jose Maria Escriva. He was the patron saint, or he is the patron saint of ordinary life. And this was like his thing, emphasizing the importance of the laity and their calling to sanctity. So I would recommend starting with a homily of his called The Christian Vocation. It's from a book called Christ is Passing By. That's a great place to start if you want to pray about the role of the laity in the church more. So if we return to the idea that the role of priests and bishops and the Pope is to serve the church and the church is us, then we see that the whole point of having a magisterium is to help us, to help the whole church grow closer to Christ, and which means that we then have to do our bit by taking Christ into the world. So if you've ever watched a marathon, as you watch it, these runners are going along, and as they're running, there are volunteers standing along the edges, handing out water and like those little energy, like protein packs or whatever they are to the runners, and they're like calling things out to them, encouraging them, saying like, you can do and everything. That's kind of like the church, right? Like the priests and the bishops and the religious provide us with the stuff that we need, the prayers and the sacraments and the doctrine and the sustenance, all the stuff that we need to go out there and take the kingdom of God to the rest of the world. But all of that that means nothing unless we're actually running the race and we're taking that sustenance and using it to fuel our own efforts. Now, of course, this division of like, you know, priests and bishops in the church and the laity in the world, it's not that simple or strict. And Lumen Gentium makes note of this, right, that there is an overlap. Some priests and religious are more in the world and there are lay people working within the church and contributing to the running of the church. In fact, this is something that it goes on to emphasize the importance of the laity within the church itself and the fact that the laity shouldn't feel completely shut out. So in paragraph 37, it says the laity by reason of the knowledge competence or outstanding ability which they may enjoy are permitted and sometimes even obliged to express their opinion on those things which concern the good of the church and then it goes on to say when occasions arise let this be done through the organs erected by the church for this purpose. Let it always be done in truth, in courage, and in prudence, with reverence and charity. Okay, so basically what it's saying here is that the laity might not have the authority to teach and govern in the way that the magisterium does, but that doesn't mean that we're being told to just like sit down and shut up. 
The church wants the laity to participate in church life, to help answer questions like, you know, how can we reach more people or or even just, you know, how can we best spend our parish budget this year? So we should be getting involved in our local parish council, getting involved in the youth group or whatever it is. So we recently had a plenary council in Australia and the laity were really encouraged to participate in that council and to help answer questions around how, you know, how is the Holy Spirit calling us to live our faith today in Australia? And that's a really beautiful thing. And and what, what it captures is this wonderful, dynamic kind of organism that is the church. People have different roles and different responsibilities, but together we are all serving and cooperating. And this is what we refer to as the communion of saints. So we can return here to that image from the last episode of a vine with many branches. So the Catechism tells us that as a church, we're in communion with each other in five key areas. The first is faith. Okay, so we all share one faith. Then sacraments. So this is one of the beautiful things about the church, that no matter where you go in the world, the sacraments will always be the same. Thirdly, charisms. So within the church, people have different gifts from the Holy Spirit, but we're all united in the way that we use those gifts to build up the church together. And then we have communion in the way that we share material goods. So point number 952 says everything the true Christian has is to be regarded as a good possessed in common with everyone else. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we can't have personal property, but it does mean that we're being called to have a generous heart, okay, and to think of of my stuff as being available to be shared with other people. And then finally, we are united in charity. We are united in our love for one another. Now, the Catechism then goes on to add that the church on earth is also in communion with the church in heaven. So point number 955 says the union of the wayfarers, so the ones on earth, with the brethren who sleep in the peace of Christ is in no way interrupted. So here we can think of the image of like a vine that's suspended above a river and like half the vine is submerged underwater and the other half is above the water. Now, one half might be below the water and the other half is above, but there's no interruption in of the union of the whole organism, right? It's, it's one single vine. And this is why we as Catholics ask for the intercession of the saints. So some non-Catholic Christians get kind of weirded out by this. They're like, oh, why do you pray to the saints? You know, you should only pray to God. Well, It's exactly the same as when I go to my friend and I say, hey, you know, I've got an exam coming up. Can you pray for me? I do the exact same thing with my friends in heaven. And this is also why we as Catholics pray for the dead, for the holy souls in purgatory. Just because someone has died, that does not mean that the cord of communion between them and the rest of the church is snapped. They are still part of that same Christian family and we have an obligation to pray for them. Okay. Okay, so speaking of the dead, this leads us nicely into our next topic, which is life everlasting, and which is also our final topic of the year. It's very exciting. Okay, I hope that you have a fantastic Christmas, and I will see you in two weeks. Bye.